0: Welcome to the Builders of Jerusalem podcast, a show that sits down with the top makers, shakers, and dreamers of the city, all working together to build it up as a city of tech, culture, and innovation. Pleasure to be joined today by Eli Wortman. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Pico Venture Partners here in Jerusalem, uh, among other things. Uh, Eli, welcome. Pleasure to have you. Good morning. Pleasure to have you here as well. <laughs> so uh, what did I not say? Who are you? What do you do?
1: So, you know, titles are a funny thing. I uh, I first and foremost consider myself uh, an entrepreneur, um, a father, um, both a tech entrepreneur and a social entrepreneur, a Jerusalem entrepreneur. Um, I'm also a, uh, a, uh, a vintner, I make wine. Um, so there are many titles, but at the end, I'm just Ellie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you started your career as entrepreneur, right? Here in
1: Jerusalem, uh, in the early '90s, before you know, people heard this idea of startup nation. um, I was uh, just out of the army and and trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do with my life, and had the good fortune of uh, connecting with uh, different uh, people—a guy named Jacob Nir David and some other friends—and got into what became, um, you know, the startup industry of uh, of Jerusalem. uh, Really, as one of the pioneers. Uh, looking back on you know, 30 years of a career mm-hmm. uh, of building out a, um, a tech ecosystem here in Jerusalem. So what was your first entryway into tech? So, you know, my skill set was quite limited. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a degree in Talmud and a degree in political science. Uh, but I spoke English and um, had the ability to kind of bridge uh, the world of te- technology and innovation. Uh, with, with people, with words, uh, with the outside world, and joined a, a group of people who started a company called TTR Technologies, um, and they were doing software encryption, um, what was called anti-piracy software at the time. Uh, a long time ago, software used to be uh, distributed on diskettes, mm-hmm. and Israel and many other countries were known as the one disk country. Uh, they'd buy one copy of a piece of software and everybody would install it, would get passed <laughs> around. And, uh, <laughs> and the company that I had joined um, had created a, um, an encryption pack which basically made it impossible to copy the, uh, the uh, diskette, the installation diskette as it was called. And we took that company, I was, I forget exactly my title, maybe VP Marketing, VP Sales, maybe both. Um, I know I, I, I kind of drove around the country door to door and met with software companies mm. trying to sell them the uh, solution. And, um, and we, uh, I was part of a team that took that company from kind of early idea founding through a fundraising process, uh, building, and eventually kind of a small IPO. Back in those days, uh, you could raise 6 or $8 million on the public markets, but I had gone through the whole cycle the um, second company here in Jerusalem was called Ambient Systems. There was a big wave of, uh, of aliyah from uh, the former Soviet Union. A lot of very gifted people were here. Um, and I partnered with people, uh, engineers, um, uh, who had come in that aliyah uh, with technological capabilities. Um, we were working on something called contactless smart cards, that sounds like a big uh, big term, and we were, in hindsight, 25 years ahead of the curve. Yeah. But you know how today you use your credit card on a wireless basis, you just tap it? Right. So we had actually come up uh, with technology to do that. It was called wow. close coupling. We had embedded inside the piece of plastic um, a, uh, a spiral piece of metal, which was able to do high-speed data transfer on a, a contactless basis. Yeah. And um, you know we had the idea right, but uh, but the timing wrong, and maybe the execution wrong. Uh, and we transitioned that company to use the same technology to do something called data over power lines, so to transmit uh, IP uh, 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 messages over over power networks. Eventually, partnered with Con Edison, the electric company in New York, mm. um, and we got that company public as well. Believe it or not. Wow. And, you know, an important thing was happening in those years, something called the Internet had just started, and voice-over IP uh, technologies were emerging. And my partner, Jacob, who I mentioned earlier, was uh, still living in, uh, in New York at the time. I was here in Jerusalem. And it used to cost, believe it or not, like 2 $3 dollars a minute to make a phone call from, from uh, Israel to the U.S. Wow. <laughs> and it's hard to imagine, right, today? Yeah. Everythi-
0: calling it every, every day all the time.
1: Everyone's talking all day. Um, so we'd have to plan out very carefully, okay, you know, when we're going to speak, how long we're going to speak for. Uh, it was kind of part of the budget, right, with those international calls. And this uh, technology you know, had emerged from Israel called Vocal Tech, and it was very clumsy at the time. Um, all sorts of things, it seems, seems like you know ancient times. Your computer, your basic you know, laptop did not have a sound card in it. Uh, it, it was not enabled with a built-in uh, microphone or speakers. Um, and to make a call, it's a little bit like the experience that we're having here in the studio. I had a big microphone. Mm-hmm. You'd either have you know, a headset plugged in uh, or speakers. And we'd make these clunky phone calls over the Internet. And we're kind of having this conversation. What if we could connect this technology to a regular telephone? Mm-hmm. Just pick up the phone, dial, dial. Uh, we're talking about like landlines, right? Things connected to the wall, not wireless phones <laughs> at, that, at that stage. Uh, but what if we could just pick up a regular phone, place a call, you know, halfway around the world, and, you know, the cost structure would, would fall by 90%. So that company was called Delta Three. Um, we founded that in May of 1996. Uh, within two years... For three years, uh, we were operating in 35 countries around the world. Oh. It was headquartered here in Jerusalem. There were probably over 300 young people uh, in their 20s working for this company here in Jerusalem. It was a different era in Jerusalem. Um, and that was the big one, if you will, right? So you know, very high profile. We were working with all of the international telecommunications companies, uh, signing contracts to... Um, transmit phone calls uh, from one country to the next. The, uh, the Network Operations Center and Headquarters were here in Jerusalem. Uh, we could see at any given time every call happening anywhere in the world from point A to point B. We introduced things that once again today seem obvious like online billing, mm-hmm. uh, voice messaging, like that you could leave somebody a voice message and it would show up on your computer. Um, faxes were still prevalent then so we had a service where you could send a fax but it would go to your email inbox. Um, and that company went public in November, I was the CEO, um, that company went public in November of 1999, so about three and a half years after we started it, It it reached a peak market cap of about $2 billion. So in the history books of Jerusalem, I think, you know, it's probably the first company to reach what we call today unicorn status. Sure. Um, it stayed above a billion dollars for over a year, so all of our investors, had the opportunity to exit if they had chosen. Um, and then, you know, for many reasons, a little bit like we're experiencing right now in the tech sector, uh, you know, the bubble had burst. Uh, they called it the dot-com bubble back then, but there was also a telecommunications bubble. Um, and the market cap was reset. Um, but the company carried on. And I, uh, a few years ago, I met somebody, accidentally walked in, he came into my office on a different matter. He says, Ellie, I don't know if you remember me. My name is, I'm making it up, Yossi. Mm-hmm. I, he said, uh, you hired me um, as a junior network operations center, uh, whatever, something, uh, technician. And uh, I just want to tell you, uh, this was, he said, 18 years later, uh, I just left the company wow. um, as, the, uh, as the CEO. <laughs> so this idea that you build something, and, and the name of your uh, podcast is Builders of Jerusalem, and then kind of what happens afterwards. Because I moved on, I in 2000 I moved on to the next thing, um, but it it affected many people's lives. There were hundreds of people working there. If we look at the early days of the high tech sector in Jerusalem and in Israel more broadly, many people kind of had their start uh, of their of their tech careers at Delta Three. So very important company I would say in the, in the landscape of, of Israel more broadly in Jerusalem in, in particular uh, my C uh, oo at the time Noam Bardeen went on to become the CEO of ways um, and there's a long list of people who I would say that was the starting point for them and uh, you know something I'm very proud of to this day was uh, kind of not only the success of, of, of these three companies and getting them public, but the first kind of decade of my career of uh, building here in Jerusalem, uh, building a tech ecosystem, uh, creating jobs here, and putting Jerusalem on the map uh, as, uh, as the center of, uh, of high-tech innovation uh, in Israel.
0: And so the company still exists today? or
1: I don't know, right? So now we're 20, you can do the math with me, 27 years later. I don't know uh, mm-hmm. if it's time has passed or not. But as of a few years ago, kind of before COVID, when I met, ran into this guy, yeah. uh, he had spent 18 years of his life there. And uh, I thought that was pretty – just a ma- magical encounter to understand that uh, something that, uh, that I built or was part of building with my team and partners, um, you know, carried on for a long time and, and was, a, was a part of uh, the architecture of the city.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I think you mentioned to me before that Jerusalem was kind of the original And you kind of just said, you know, Jerusalem was the tap capital of Israel. Obviously, today it's Tel Aviv. Um, Where did that transition happen?
1: So I'm going to give you a nuanced answer. So the kind of technical answer is that um, shortly after the dot-com bubble burst in you know 2000 2001, uh, the second intifada started, right, which is the Palestinian uprising. Uh, very sadly, you know, there were bombs going off in the city every day, sure. explosions on buses and in, in, uh, in bars, coffee shops. You know, I'm, we're, we're here in downtown Jerusalem, and, and I used to live here um, around that time. It was a very scary period. And, you know, I would argue rightfully so. A lot of young people left. I, I estimate about 2,000 people uh, left the city. Uh, they moved to Tel Aviv. The first time I had heard uh, the the name Rothschild Boulevard, mm-hmm. one of uh, one of uh, the guys who was working with me uh, told me he was moving to Tel Aviv and he bought, bought an apartment on Rothschild Boulevard. I believe not, I've run into him recently as well. and He still lives in that same apartment. Good investment. Uh, good, great investment. <laughs> yeah. Great investment. I think Rothschild at the time, you know, was was. Like three thousand dollars a meter to purchase today. It's thirty, <laughs> um, so that the the the, the political the uh, Palestinian uprising here really called you know caused this mass exodus. Uh, I used to refer to it as a uh, kind of a nuclear winter, which had come over Jerusalem from a investment perspective, from a technological innovation perspective. Um, and it was probably, you know, it was probably a good decade until the scene started to uh, to emerge here again. Uh, I was involved with that as well, with the founding of, of Pico, and we can speak about that. Um, but that that's where I kind of point and say, you know, when did Jerusalem uh, get sign-lined as the kind of uh, headquarters and the the heartbeat of the of the tech industry, and when did it shift to Tel Aviv? It was then. The nuance is something I call Jerusalem DNA. So I think a lot of people living in Tel Aviv driving the tech ecosystem uh, are people that grew up in the city. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's kind of one of the most magical things as, as uh, someone who lives here uh, and appreciates everything that Jerusalem has to offer is understanding that, that this city has created people with, uh, with creative overdrive, a sense of mission and purpose – uh historical context of what it takes to build big things when you look at the old city, mm-hmm. you understand that uh, Jerusalem wasn't built overnight and that you know writing some app doesn't make you a, a great builder but you have to do big things. As I look at some of the biggest companies to uh, to emerge in Israel and the leaders of those companies, you'll find many people that grew up in the city whether they're building it here in Jerusalem or they've gone on to uh, to build it in in Tel Aviv or Haifa or you know or the US for that matter.
0: Mm-hmm. And at any point, did you consider packing up and, and leaving during that time?
1: So, you know, in my personal career, um, I had a very good opportunity in 2006 to join uh, Benchmark Capital, mm-hmm. which was kind of one of the leading Silicon Valley uh, funds. And uh, they had a dedicated fund here for Israel, and I was one of three partners running um, the uh, the Benchmark Israel Fund. And I would say that was kind of, for me, a moment of defeat because our offices, our headquarters were in uh, Herzliya Pituach, which was one of the other hubs for tech uh, at the time. It still is today. Um, but At the time, it was very much kind of the, the, the epicenter of the tech industry and the investment industry. So I spent you know, a good six years uh, schlepping, if you will, sure. or commuting uh, early in the morning from uh, from Jerusalem to, uh, to Herzliya Pituach. And... Um, yeah, I would say, kind of at a spiritual level, it was a bit of a uh, it was a bit of a failure, and, and I felt uh, like I was a fish out of water, um, and uh, and yet, you know, I'm back here, and uh, and and you know, my next chapter was all about kind of building stuff in, in Jerusalem.
0: And so after that, so after Benchmark, you founded Pico.
1: So I've I founded uh, Pico originally as a as a nonprofit initiative, an economic development initiative. In two th- late 2012, early 2013, uh, once again, before anybody knew kind of uh, the two magic words, we work and this idea of co-working spaces, we, uh, we had this vision to, for PICO to be um, a hub, an office, a center of activity for the Jerusalem entrepreneurial community. And, you know, we launched in the Tapio industrial area. Um, I saw that the real estate was much cheaper there than downtown, and, and yet it was kind of geographically very very close in close proximity to where a lot of the people working in the tech industry uh, were living, which is southern Jerusalem. Many of those people were commuting to Tel Aviv, and I just thought that we could build a uh, kind of rebuild a new center of entrepreneurial innovation in Talpio, raise the flag there, um, and we launched PICO, which stands for uh, – PICO Jerusalem, actually, which stands for People, Ideas, Community, and Opportunity. The tagline in Hebrew was uh, kind of a, a workspace for, uh, for Jerusalem entrepreneurs. Um, and – or maybe just was a workspace for, for Jerusalemites. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that year, like two – I think 2,000 people came through the space either to work or to come to events. Uh, and there was some magical energy which, which was forming in the city at the time. John Medved had just uh, kind of established our crowd here in the city at the same time. Uh, a student organization called Ciftec, uh which is still active today in a different form, had started an accelerator program at Hebrew U. And I think all these things happening together uh, create an eruption. Not, it's not one thing ever that, that's responsible for success, but uh, multiple people coming together with a passion to rebuild the entrepreneurial community in the city, um, was happening around that time. Uh, The city stepped in, the Jerusalem Development Authority, started funding and providing incentives for for startups and and support. Um, And it was just, it was a a very good period. Um, Some super interesting uh, companies came through Pico in those years via the global ride-sharing business their first office uh, in Israel was 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 at Pico. Mm-hmm. I saw the first ride in New York get turned on from uh, from our office. It was a very exciting moment. Um, um, there's a lot, long list of companies which which got their start there, including companies I've been involved with, uh, like Vroom, the online car business, and uh, more importantly, we just we 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 created uh, a new reality, right? After entrepreneurs had turned off to the idea that you can start a business here, right? That you don't have to go to Tel Aviv to be in the center of the action, um, but that there was kind of permission granted um, to start your to start your startup uh, here in the city. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't keep track; it's it's not my business. But um, I think you know, it was, it, since that period, hundreds of startups. Um, have been established, you know, here in the city, some very successfully, um, you know, as well as an emerging investment ecosystem, which, which is an important piece of the puzzle.
0: Hmm. So did you grow up in Jerusalem?
1: Okay, so we're going back in time. because <laughs> uh, no, I'll, I'll try to figure yeah. out,
0: like, you know, where this uh, drive comes for the, for the city.
1: <laughs> yeah. So my family made uh, Aliyah from, hmm. uh, from uh, Philadelphia, In uh, the summer of 1977, it was very different Jerusalem than today. Mm -hmm. I call it uh, Teddy Kollek Jerusalem. It was kind of a a magic uh, era for the city. Um, I think kind of the the intelligentsia of Israel, uh, you know, was here. Um, um, It was this period of reunification, lots of optimism about the future of the city, and you know, I was. I was born into a very ideological home. My parents were very, my parents were very active in the Soviet Jewry movement, uh, which is what ultimately l- kind of led them to make Aliyah, to be a, bar- a part of the rebirth of, uh, of the Jewish homeland. And you know, to them it was obvious, this is, this is where you live and, and mm-hmm. this is where uh, you want to be. Um, the old city was just kind of the Jewish quarter was being rebuilt at the time. They bought a house, but we, we ended up not moving in there. But one of my closest friends uh, at the time uh, lived in the Old City. I actually just heard from him recently the magic of Facebook after not being in touch for 40 years. Um, but you know, I grew up here, and I, I, I grew up in, in the Old City. I grew up absorbing, I like to say, the, the sounds, the voices, the prayers, the smells, the, the culture of, of, of Jerusalem and everything it represents. In those years as, uh, as an eight-year-old um, Growing up in the city um, And I'll say specifically my father I felt like he, uh, he, he, he danced his way through the city every day He took great pride in every building And every new project uh, If visitors would come from the U.S. or from elsewhere And he would show them around He'd say, look at this new park that we've just built And he used those words, we, right? Uh-huh. That... Uh, everything happening in this country and everything happening in this city uh, was something that uh, that he and we were a part of right this this idea uh, of a sense of, uh, of family and togetherness and cohesion um, in our society and, and the sense of mission that we're part of building the city I would say it's that passion uh, for Jerusalem the passion for Israel um, is what you know I've taken uh, I've taken forward as well and and, you know, building stuff here and, and, and building stuff in the city and contributing um, is part of that original uh, love affair, if you will, that my parents had uh, with Jerusalem uh, and with Israel going back to kind of my early, fairly early
0: childhood. Amazing. And so, and so, though, you transitioned to that. Um, so you have Pico Kids. So I guess if you want to talk about that, what you identified and...
1: Yep. So, you know, I spoke to you about kind of Jerusalem DNA and this understanding that the complexity of Jerusalem, and we can interpret that in so many ways, drives uh, creativity, right? If, if every day when you wake up in the morning you go outside and you have to adapt that, you know, one person's ultra-orthodox and I have to maybe behave a certain way or speak a certain way with him or her. Uh, another guy is, uh, yeah, it was a modern uh, young recent grad who's moved to Israel. Third guy is you know maybe uh, a hippie Jew who uh, who made aliyah from uh, Boulder, Colorado, and is adapting to uh, to the Jerusalem syndrome, and another guy you know is from East Jerusalem, and there's there's complexity here that we don't encounter in most cities these in the world. I I tell people I walk down Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv, we more or less encounter the same person, right? They all adapt to the Tel Aviv model. Mm-hmm. Here. You have you know so much going on, and, and it, I think it just it it's we're 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 uh, flexing our creative muscles uh, just to survive every day. You wrap that with this sense of place, the energy that you feel in the city, uh, whether it's a spiritual energy, um, you know, emanating from the old city or historical, uh, historical sense of of, of place and understanding you know whether you're religious or secular that these places that we read about in the Bible and the stories you know it's all here right mm-hmm. and you're walking in the footsteps of uh, of uh, of the Jewish people for the last you know thousands of years um, I think all that creates a DNA uh, which is unique to Jerusalemites I don't th- I don't say you have to be born here but you have to kind of live here it has to have an impact on you right you can you can pass through here and also kind of get this Jerusalem DNA, uh, but it's it's magical. A lot of people, um, you know, identify as Jerusalemites many years, you know, after they've they've moved on. That 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 they're kind of growing up here leaves an impression, which which becomes your part of your identity. Um, so with that understanding that that there's a special DNA in the city, and that. Much of the high-tech industry has been built and led by by Jerusalemites, and it's a long list of companies. I tell you, the CEO of Waves grew up in Jerusalem. Uh, Mobileye is obvious; it's uh-huh. here. Uh, CyberArk. Um, um, it's a. It's just a very, very, very long list of companies, and some of the bigger companies, if you will, the ones that made the really you know big, large-scale impact. Um, and I, at one point, I don't think it's true today, but at one point I had measured that 50% of the economic output of uh, Startup Nation uh, had a strong kind of Jerusalem DNA in its leadership team, the founders, the CEO. Um, uh, Checkpoint, by the way, uh, one of Israel's biggest companies to this day, uh, was built uh, by, uh, by a Jerusalemite. Somebody that Teva here.
0: Pharmaceuticals, too. First.
1: Teva has, has a lot of its origins here. Uh, the list is very long, and, and I think it's you could, you could you can come up with all sorts of explanations, but the statistics you know, that 5% of the population of Israel is responsible for, for 50% of the leadership of the big outcomes, I think there's a higher correlation. Sure. Uh, and I've had the good fortune of interviewing many, uh, many uh, entrepreneurs who grew up here, working closely with them. I was very involved with a company called Iron Source, one of the biggest outcomes ever in Israel. Israel, a $10 billion uh, public listing uh, last year, oh. uh, and uh, recently merged with an uh, with American company called Unity Software. Um, and four of the seven founders there were, were Jerusalemites. Right? They grew up here. Um, so I think there's magic here, and I think if, if we want to preserve that, we have to invest in the youth, right? That the youth of the city fundamentally will define its future. Um, and if you think of kind of who are the future builders of Jerusalem, it's, it's the kids growing up here. There's a high likelihood that that many of them will make their lives here. And and alongside establishing uh, Pico Jerusalem, the, the co-working space, I established something called Pico Kids, which is a nonprofit initiative to, to teach uh, young people, junior high and, and high school, um, what I call 21st century skills, which, which – Rests on science, technology, engineering, and math. What's called STEM. But also rests on values and identity. Who am I? What does it mean to be a Jerusalemite? Uh, what values? What are the Jerusalem values uh, that I'm responsible for? Do I look at the world in, in a positive way and, and, and bring the values of, of how can I improve uh, reality? Um and we teach soft skills as well, public speaking, uh, how to express your ideas, how to build projects, how to become a maker, a doer. Uh, so all this together started with, uh, with 12 kids in my office, uh, an experimental program. Ten years ago, it's actually quite funny as we're celebrating uh, Yom HaTzmaut now. So I think it was it's either, it was either, I think it must have been kind of the 65th anniversary of Israel, and I remember... Uh, sitting with these 12 kids and going through kind of 66 innovations or 65 innovations that come out of Israel, identifying for them kind of what had Jerusalem DNA in it um, and, you know, really helping to form young people's view uh, of who they are, how they can go out in the world and become change makers and what it means to be a Jerusalemite. So we started with 12 kids. Uh, we peaked at about 4,000 kids a year uh, before Corona. Wow! Operating in uh, 60 schools here in the city, establishing our own uh, maker space together with support of the uh, the Jerusalem Development Authority, who have been partners to me uh, in this endeavor. Uh, they also understood right that if we want to have a future economic pipeline, we need young creative people uh, who are in the city who are engaged. Um, We've produced uh, makeathons and hackathons, kind of throughout the city, using the city uh, as our classroom and our playground. So uh, imagine uh, the Tower of David Museum getting filled up with kids uh, for a overnight, 24-hour uh, make-a-thon of, of innovation and working in, the, in old, you know, ancient mm-hmm. uh, crusader rooms and what have you. Um, we've partnered with the uh, with the Science Museum here. We've partnered the Jerusalem Botanical Gardens and, and had kids working with the gardeners um, at uh, the Jerusalem Botanical Gardens, understanding what challenges they have with water management and water conservation and how they can innovate in those areas. Uh, so PICO Kids has really been um, you know, an amazing project. I, I, I hope we'll, we'll see the results later, tremendous contribution uh, to the city of Jerusalem. Um, we'll be celebrating 10, 10 uh, years to Pico Kids um, later this month, and you know part of our, our recognition is that there are now you know 10 12 thousand kids who have a strong sense of Jerusalem identity, sure. but also a strong sense of of, of 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 what responsibility comes with that to be a positive change maker in the world. Uh, they've also been trained in various skills in robotics and uh, 3D printing and coding. Um, and all that is kind of part of, part of this vision for, for PICO as an organization uh, to both be a driver of, of economic development in the city but also a driver of, uh, of, of social change and, and social entrepreneurship. I'll mention two more things. We helped launch through PICO Kids a very important program Called Queen B, which is just for girls, uh, led by uh, by young women, who uh, who are really uh, helping young women um, in junior high school and high school learn coding, but also have personal role models of what it means to be a, a leader in the field of tech, um, and also a program called Babada, which is working with the ultra orthodox community, and you know I think we're up to about thirteen hundred. Uh, you know, kids um, s- fifth, sixth, seventh grade, learning robotics, learning uh, learning technology, learning how to think creatively, how to be problem solvers. And I think it's kind of through the youth where we could take optimism of, 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 of what you know building a better future could look like sure. for this city and, and beyond, obviously. And you've done it beyond too with the ambassadors. So the ambassador is just kind of the uh, the uh, the cherry on top or the icing on the cake or whatever, whatever term we want to use. Uh-huh. Um, and you know the Pico Kids Ambassadors program started you know pre-COVID, so probably 2019. I was on a business trip to China, and I was talking to a colleague there. I was telling him about Pico Kids. He tells me I'm the chairman of a the school there. I'm like, why don't we do an exchange program? He's like, sure. Now I was moving in an Israeli pace, and he was, you know, he was thinking in Chinese terms. <laughs> I was like, okay, great, you know, like in six weeks we'll we'll bring a group of twenty <laughs> kids here to Hong Kong. So, oh, oh. I'm like, yeah, let's go meet the school now, and and this and that, and um, it's like one of these small world things. I think like the the rabbi of the Jewish community's wife works at the school, and we hit it off. And next thing I knew, there were kids being trained to be ambassadors of Jerusalem, so. Kids who didn't necessarily speak English had to learn to get up and present in English the values of, of Pico kids, what it means to be a Jerusalemite, uh, what, uh, you know, what challenge we were going to take on together, uh, which was air quality. It's a, it's, a, it's a universal problem. It's a big problem in China. It's a big problem uh, in parts of Israel. And these kids went out, uh, had a kind of magical, transformative experience, a week-long make-a-thon. They, uh, they built prototypes and, and solutions and presented them at a big ceremony at the end of that week about uh, about air quality. A company called uh, Brazometer had also kind of come through Pico, which which was a very successful um, startup in, in, in the field of, of air quality. And when the kids came back, I, I met with the parents and the kids and I said, so tell me, tell me about your experience. And one kid touched me, and I'll never forget it. He said, you know, we're very different, very different cultures, very different backgrounds. Uh, but we realized kind of deep down that, you know, we're the same. We play the same video games and, you know, and uh, play the same games. But more than that, that, that our perspectives and coming together, we were able to reach better outcomes and better solutions. And that was really the driver behind the, the Pico Kids Exchange program. We went on to do uh, two more delegations to China, one to Shanghai, another one to Hong Kong. During COVID, we did uh, various online programs as far as Australia and, and other parts of the world. Um, and then, you know, the magic of the Abraham Accords, right? And, and that opened the doors to, you know, tremendous opportunity to really be ambassadors, right? Uh, to be the first delegation of youth going into a, uh, a Muslim country. Uh, around these these shared values of, of innovation and execution and change makers and I think so far we've done three delegations to uh, to the UAE uh, I personally participated in in the first delegation to Bahrain which is very important to me um, and we continue right there's another one going uh, in a couple of months I think uh, tonight is the first parent uh, parent uh, information meeting hmm. Um we're now working on, uh, on a delegation to Africa to go work on some of the problems there around uh, weather quality. Um, so it's really, you know, if, if you look at our methodology, but you also look at the, the magic of the city, our, math, our methodology is, is, is for kids to have peak experiences. Uh-huh. That once you open up the heart and the motivation, you know, information and learning flows, motivation uh, is at its peak. And we see kids who who really didn't speak two words of English, getting up and and giving kind of a TED talk like uh, like uh, talk uh, in English, or um, or kids just kind of consuming so much you know knowledge very quickly to prepare themselves for this very high level experience. And you know, as a I wouldn't call myself an educator, but I would say as a social entrepreneur, I'd say you know. The magic that we figured out in education was unlock the heart, uh, the mind and the hands will follow, um, and that's what we do through all these events and peak experiences, whether it's a hackathon or a makeathon or a delegation or, or any other experience that we can bring to kids. It's putting the kids you know, in the center, giving them the tools to go out uh, and, and lead the process and, and make a difference.
0: Incredible. Um, so I guess taking a step from tech and innovation, or maybe it is still innovation. I had the pleasure, had to go visit, uh, your vineyard, um, in Villas, Villas up north. You want to talk about that a bit? So, uh,
1: Bashlamo Vineyards, um, I started with a uh, dear friend, Ari Earl, uh, who's one of the most talented and gifted winemakers, uh, in Israel, maybe in the world, um, But we both shared kind of a a Zionist mission and and a passion uh, uh, for wine. And I'd say it was a a dream, maybe uh, maybe a silly dream, but a dream of kind of establishing a winery in Israel. And I was taking my kids uh, horseback riding uh, in the Carmel kind of mountains area. Um, And somebody said to me, stop at this little village called Bat Shlomo uh, on the way up. And I fell in love. It was uh, it may be the only uh, street left in Israel, more or less as it was during the First Aliyah in 1889. Uh It's literally falling apart. Uh, It was like this forgotten, uh, forgotten in time and forgotten, you know, forever. uh, Street with 13 homes, a synagogue, a mikveh, a one-room schoolhouse, Um, and its history was in uh, was in winemaking and in uh, uh, we have we've found remains going back 2,000 years of winemaking. We found an ancient wine press. Uh-huh. And then the Rothschilds, when they were helping to fund the first aliyah, the, the, the industry that they established in Israel uh, was winemaking make- in the, the, the famous Carmel Mizrahi winery in, in Zichron Yaakov. Bachla Mo is very close by. And it's where they had planted grapes and, and the economy – we're calling it a village, right, but it's 13 hubs, was around uh, winemaking. And I call up Ari and I say, I found the place. We're going to build a winery here. We're going to build a guest house, a small boutique hotel. We're going to build a tasting room, and we're going to tell the story of of Israel and where modern Israel started and the journey from there to where Israel is today, which is a great quality of life, built on economic prosperity and innovation, um, and that we've built a very kind of great quality of life. I hope you, you had a good experience when you were there. Definitely. <laughs> and, and this idea that we could take people on, on, a, on a journey of, of what I call contemporary Zionism. And if the Zionist movement started with um, planting the land, settling the land, setting up uh, small villages and places for people to return to the land like Pachlomo, that the evolution from there obviously was' kind of to our to our military and building the Israel Defense forces the ability to defend ourselves but that the third phase of Zionism was about you know, high-tech and e- economic innovation uh, entrepreneurship and that that prosperity would enable us to build a great quality of life here but also enable us to build peace and bridges into uh, to our region, that the innovation and the economic prosperity would ultimately be the connector, very much what we've seen happen with the Abraham Accords. Sure. And you know, Bachlomo, and through a physical product. Most of my life has been in digital and virtual products, but through a, a, a physical product that, that travels, if you will, and ends up in people's homes on their dinner table, or ends up, you know, under a chuppah, or ends up at a celebration that the wine can uh, for me can help tell the story. And and was is definitely a passion project. Um, probably representing the, the the Zionism of my of my parents and my starting point in Israel and coming here before Israel was an economic powerhouse, it was a it was an agricultural society when we got here, not not a developed economy. And that through my own life in the last thirty years I've been involved with building out a tech ecosystem, you know, from Jerusalem as a Jerusalemite but part of building Israel. And uh and the the project in Bashlomo, which today is also is a beautiful guest house and a place where people can come and immerse themselves in Israeli wine and food and, and art and views, um, is a place where we can reflect um uh not only on the accomplishment but also where we're going, right? And what are the values of, of contemporary Zionism? Mm-hmm. What society do you want to build here? Um, and that, for me, is what uh, what Pashlemo is all about. And and we make some pretty good wine as well. It's it's gotten Sorry. top 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 reviews from Robert Parker and 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 uh, and many other people have tasted it. And, and I think it does a good job as of representing uh, the Israel story.
0: Definitely. So. So you mentioned the, like what you see as the three stages. Do you see there being a fourth stage? Do you see where do you see the future going?
1: So if you asked me that question six months ago, the the fourth stage, um, you know, would have been about you know social responsibility and and you know, whether we do with the success and with the prosperity and how do we build a better, uh, uh, more caring society. Um, you know, today we're, we're dealing with, with some real challenges which have put uh, a spotlight uh, on some of those issues and what does the future of Israeli society look like. And I think now we're we're in a stage where we're, you know, we're going to focus on values, right? What are the shared values of the society? What is the contemporary definition of, of, of Zionism? What does it mean to be an Israeli? And I think we're moving at a rapid pace, right? It was forced upon us... Um, through the political crisis, uh, for us to reflect and to to work hard to build uh, a set of shared values that, you know, we're 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 he- we're always here. It's it's what pulled my parents into this country. It's what's driven me throughout my life. But we need to kind of regroup uh, as a country and as a society back to our shared values. And I think that's what we're that's the chapter that we're in right now. Uh, mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're probably in the first phase, something I'm, I'm engaging with deeply, personally, as well. Um, I think it's critical. We have a great country. We have a great society, very strong core, but we have to bring people together now.
0: And you see Jerusalem playing a prominent role in that?
1: I am certain that Jerusalem will play a prominent role, both in values and sense of place and history. Uh, and the people of the city, which are the most diverse and the most you know, kind of representative, of Israel more broadly, that anything that we figure out in Jerusalem, yeah, uh, you know, will be heard throughout the country and throughout the world, and I think this is the place uh, where where much progress will be
0: made. I agree. So I, I like to ask um, for the listeners who are maybe not in Jerusalem, maybe elsewhere in Israel, outside, what are some of your favorite things to do, places to eat at in, in the city?
1: Mm. So things to do is, you know, I can, I, I, I've can walked the, the alleyways of, of the Old city of Jerusalem hundreds of times, thousands of times, who knows. Um, it's always magical, and there's always something new that reveals itself, and I can't overemphasize kind of the, the magic of the Old City. Um, and, you know, I decided personally to focus on Talpiot with Pico, that that was an area that could be developed. It was a center of creativity. And uh, there are many hidden secrets there, right? So it's it's an ugly part of the city. It's an industrial part of the city. But you'll find artist uh, studios there. You'll find chocolate factories. You'll find uh, the one of the best uh, ice cream factories in Jerusalem, Mussolini. Yeah. Um, you'll find hummus talpiot. Everyone thinks I'm crazy. I talk about... Uh, the hummus at Talpiot but I really think it's the best uh, best hummus <laughs> in Israel and uh, one of my passion projects I've never finished but like a culinary walking tour of Talpiot of the <laughs> okay. industrial area and I think that there's you know there's a lot of hidden gems throughout this city and uh, you can find some of them in Talpiot um, the also the uh the uh, the reveals a lot of magic as well my favorite restaurant and and really one of the first restaurants in israel to carry bachlamo wine was Jocko street okay uh it was a hole in the wall uh smaller than the studio that we're sitting in right now when they started and uh i had tremendous amazing family uh, dinners there and um back in probably 2014 is when i think they started we'd have to check and they've, uh, they've expanded and expanded and expanded. And it's really you know, one of the biggest uh, um, you know, food experiences in, in Machna Yehuda. Um, but there's a lot of hidden gems here. Uh, on the secret of Jerusalem DNA, that, that, that it's that Jerusalem DNA that drives creativity, all you need to do is look at the long list of, of the top restaurants of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and you'll find that those Jerusalem chefs, people that grew up in the city, are the magicians behind some of the very best restaurants in Israel?
0: Pretty much every top chef, I think, is from Jerusalem. Correct.
1: So it's it's another layer of when I look at this Jerusalem DNA story and the creativity and the the kind of diversity of the city uh, that also expresses itself in the uh, in the Israeli kitchen. Whereas uh, as the um, likes to say, you know that that his kitchen is based on the Jerusalem kitchen mm-hmm. and I think it's all it's all part of the magic of the city and and whether you encounter a, a Jerusalemite uh, in the kitchen in Jerusalem or you encounter him or her in the Jerusalem and Tel Aviv or Paris or London the inspiration uh, comes from this city
0: sure so any any uh any thoughts ideas you want to you wanna leave people with
1: uh, people accuse me of being an optimist, <laughs> and uh, it's a hard city, it's a conflict city, uh, but it's also a magical city, and uh, anyone listening uh, should come here, spend time here, uh, and I promise you that you'll leave with a sense of energy that can be experienced uh, nowhere else but here, um, and it's a great you know, place for inspiration, and take it and go out and do something good with it.
0: Great, and and ways people could follow your work, or
1: thanks to people like you <laughs> uh, getting the word out there. Um, I uh, I don't I don't think I'm very active uh, on the social networks. A little bit we try, but um, but I've had the good fortune of of, of meeting um, uh, really people like yourself who are, are interested in the work I'm doing and the story and helping get the word out. So thank you
0: for doing yeah. that. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for the work that you do, and uh, yeah, appreciate it. All right, thank you. All right, cheers.